Hey, if you brought a Bible, Luke chapter 5 is where we're at. I woke up Tuesday, couldn't talk. Don't know what happened, but we got a microphone, so we should be okay today. I might have to take some swigs of water, but we'll see how it goes. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, Luke is towards the back of your Bible. Look for some guys' names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how it will go. Again, you want the big number five. We are nearing the conclusion to this series of talks that we have called Flip the Switch. I believe there are some things in life that if you would just turn off or turn on in our often than not that God would do something powerful in your life. If we would plug into the power source who is Jesus, then we can learn how to flip the things on some sin in our lives, some lies that we believe. We can learn how to flip the switch on faith and fear and pride and our lives can look radically different when Jesus illuminates our eyes to these truths. I'm calling the message this morning. It's not me, it's you. Now it's, we're used to that saying going a little bit differently. I don't know if you've had the privilege of breaking up with someone in a public place, but the proper etiquette to use in that situation, what you're supposed to say is in yim. It's not you, it's me. Well, I just said it's not me, it's it's you. As best as I can tell, the phrase was popularized by a 1993 episode of Seinfeld when a woman dumps George. She says, it's not you, it's me. If you've seen the episode, though, you know that's George's line. She can't use that line, but word has gotten out. Nonetheless, you know, if you've ever said that, it's really not you, it's totally them. You were just trying to be nice. The irony in that, though, is if they said it's not you, it's me, then then you're like, yeah, it totally is you. So depending on which end of the conversation you're on, it can make the statement true or false. But in the context of our conversation today, we're going to talk about faith. And faith is, it's not about me, it's about you. Let's read this together. You should have found Luke chapter 5 by now. We're picking it up in verse 17. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from each and every village in Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, whose faith? Theirs. Friends. Sometimes you got to have faith for your friends. That's why I challenge you to get into a small group so you can have faith for each other. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus, like a boss, like a Jedi master, knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up that yoga mat, go home. 
And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you just again for the opportunity to come gather in this place to hear from your word. We believe that you still speak to us through the Bible. We ask to hear your voice right now. Teach us things, guide us, illuminate us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We long to hear what you would have to say to change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I would encourage you whenever you read the Bible, don't just read the words. Put yourself in the scene. Make yourself an observer watching things unfold. Ask questions. Surveil the environment. Keep your eye on the people. Who is that guy? What is he doing? Why are they here? Here, Don't presume words that aren't in the text, but uh, use your imagination to allow God to illuminate some truths to you and, and help you understand what's happening in order to discover what God is trying to teach you in a passage. For example, in this story, we're immediately introduced to a number of characters. We have Jesus. Hopefully you have a little bit of a grasp on who he is. He's kind of a big deal. We have, uh, we're going to talk about him more in a second, but we've also got some Pharisees and t- teachers of religious law, freaking lawyers again. They think they're a big deal. They're not. We also have some guys carrying this paralyzed man who are all clearly the opposite of a big deal because they can't even get tickets in to see Jesus. The Pharisees put a bouncer at the door and these guys showed up, said, you're not on the list. You can't come in. The guys holding the mat say, you don't understand. We really need to see Jesus. Bouncer says, nobody gets in if they're not on the list. Pharisee rolls up. He's like, oh, hey, Jeshua, what's up, dog? Yeah, come on in. And the guys are like, what? Why? What? You're not on the list. Fine. Jot this down if you're taking notes. It's not me. It's the Pharisees. It's not me. It's the Pharisees. Who are they? Well, I wonder if any of you are willing to admit that you are a control freak. Anyone willing to admit that? Just a show of hands. If somebody next to you needs their hand raised, you can physically assist them at this moment. Okay, see some of you doing that. Some of you are like, I ain't raising my hand. You ain't telling me what to do, right? <laughs> control freak alert. But <clears throat> I'll admit it. I'm a little bit of a control freak. Somebody asked me the other day why I hate flying so much. And I, I think it's because I'm a little bit of a control freak. When I'm on a plane, I'm not in control. And there are times I don't feel like the pilot is either. But it's a different, different message. In our story, Jesus has gathered around some control freaks. The Pharisees have controlled the entire religious system within Jerusalem and the surrounding areas for literally centuries. And when they hear that a man has come to town who does great miracles, a man who might be the one that uh, is prophesied about in the Old Testament, someone they should have recognized because Pharisees had the first five books of the Bible memorized, so they should have been able to understand when a Messiah who would deliver them from oppression had shown up. So when they hear about this Jesus, they want to come investigate, check things out, see who he is. 
The problem is, since they were control freaks, they weren't actually looking for a savior. See, when you're in control, you don't need a savior. You need an enabler. They were looking for an endorsement, not a fulfillment. They wanted recognition because they had kept all the rules just for the record. Rules are a lot easier to keep when you can uh, manufacture new rules to circumvent the old rules. That's why the rigid, uh, religious uh, law guys were there, the lawyers, to uh, help circumvent new rules. So the problem in our story was the Pharisees were looking for an award when they should have been looking to make a way. I don't know about you, but if a group of guys came up to me and I was in, uh, in a, in a group, a large group of people and they were hauling a stretcher and they were pushing their way through the crowd and I saw the sheer look of determination on their face, I would probably move out of the way. I'd actually probably try and help them. Tap the guy in front of me. Hey, we got somebody trying to come through here. Can you move out of the way? That's not what the Pharisees did. They scoffed at these guys. Seats taken. Taken. Can't sit here. And it just goes to show that sometimes church people can get in the way of broken people coming to Christ. Sometimes the church can do more harm than good. It's been said there are two types uh, or two reasons why people won't come to church. Number one, they don't know a Christian. And number two, they do know a Christian. See, sometimes we're so busy nitpicking each other about things that don't matter, that are clearly not defined in Scripture, we end up forgetting why Jesus came in the first place. We're so busy looking for affirmation, we miss the fact that Jesus is looking for accessibility. Our job is to get out of the way so hurt, broken, lost people can see how close Jesus really is. And I think the point here is you care about, care more about the cure when your friends are involved. So you look at the persistence of these four men. They come, the place is packed, the bouncer will not pull the velvet rope. They could have said, well, we tried. Sorry, old buddy. Maybe next time, maybe tomorrow we can get to Jesus. No, instead they said, no, let's go around. Let's find another way in. Let's get up to the roof. Let's break apart some tiles. I love the attitude that these guys had. So often when we go up to someone who is not a believer and say, hey, you want to come to church with me? And they say no. We're like, oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. I, never mind. That's it. Never ask them again. And we think, well, I don't want to bother them. You know, I don't want to be pushy, pastor. Listen, you're far from pushy. Pushy would be saying, well, why don't you want to go? You know, oh, I got to work. Oh, okay. Well, how much do you make at your job per day? I make, I make about $250. I'll give you $250 to come church with me. Right? Like that would be pushy. Okay, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's, nobody's doing that. But I bet we'd all agree that we'd give up $250 to see our friends saved. You know, that's a pretty small price to pay when you're considering the fact of eternity and our friends' lives being at stake. I guess let me say it this way. Do we really believe what we claim to believe as Christians? Do we really believe there is a heaven and a hell? Do we really believe the wages of sin is death? If so, then how can we be so casual about eliminating barriers so others can get close to Jesus? How can we be so casual when it comes to serving Jesus? 
say, no, I'm going to serve in kids' ministry because when my friends bring their kids here, I want to be the ones that their kids see. I'm going to serve on the welcome team because when my friends show up, I want to be the one that welcomes them. I'm going to get here early. I'm going to set up the gymnasium. I want to make sure everything works right so nothing distracts my friend and they can hear the gospel proclaimed. Now, I'm going to push a button on a computer to change the sermon slide so my friend can see the passage of Scripture on a screen because they might not have bought a Bible and their life is at stake. See, we care more about the cure when our friends are involved. I'm going through the roof when there's an obstacle out front because it matters. Somebody say it matters. It matters how we serve. It matters to God. It matters to your friends. There's a whole world out there who's paralyzed by this thing called sin and you've got the ability to stop it because Jesus' Holy Spirit is living inside you. Proverbs uh, 21 tells us that our job is to prepare the horse for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How, how well are you doing at preparing the horse for battle so that, that you can eliminate obstacles for people? Because the deal is there are some folks in the world who can't prepare their horse. This man was paralyzed. He could literally do nothing for himself. As I was reading this, I began wondering, what's that like? not being able to move, being completely and unconditionally dependent upon somebody else. On some level, I could relate because in high school, I had to have knee surgery and uh, ACL reconstruction. And so, you know, there's a season where I couldn't really move and I was dependent upon my parents to help me out. And I knew on some level what it was like because I had seen my wife who gave birth to our son. She asked for the epidural is fine. Okay. I mean, I was not the one pumping a human being out of my body. So I was like, babe, do whatever you got to do. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you don't have to take a stick and some boiling water as far as I'm concerned, you know, just do, do what you do. So, uh, she, but, but when you get the epidural, your legs are paralyzed. You cannot walk. The difference is in both situations, we had a hope for future movement. Like we knew that our bodies on some level would repair themselves or, or, you know, the drugs would wear off and we'd be able to move. We were not paralyzed for life. For moments, we had to swallow our pride, but we had the knowledge that this was not permanent. This man, he did not have that. His pride was permanently put down. He couldn't do anything for himself, even something as simple as going to the bathroom. Do you realize how humiliating that is. This past month, a a team of folks from here, including myself, went to California. We went to a a private training because we wanted to learn how to serve you all better. And uh, in one of the the conference uh, little sessions that we were in, there was a quadriplegic sitting in there, sitting in his wheelchair. Uh, The only thing he could move was his head, and his wheelchair was outfitted with a little thing that fit on his chin, and that's how he could move uh, the joystick in order to travel around in his chair. But uh, as we were getting ready to head out of the, the, the session... His foot had slipped off of his wheelchair and it had caught and he obviously didn't know it. He couldn't feel it. But as he started to drive away, it was rotating the long, the wrong way. And I gave him the universal two-handed, you know, stop, hold up, you know, bro, you're, you're about to break your foot off. And, and so I, 
I stopped him and I got down and, and uh, tried to unwedge his, his foot from, from where the wheelchair is. But as I was uh, down there, I noticed that his, his urine bag was, was sitting in, in, in plain sight for me to see. So what's normally done in private was now in, in very plain sight for a complete and total stranger, someone we'd never met before. And as I was, you know, helping him out, it occurred to me how humiliating that must have been for him to, to realize that his, you know, uh, <clears throat> urine is just sitting right there <clears throat> in plain sight for me. Jot this down. It's not me. It's them. It's not me. It's them. This is very much the reality of the man in our story. We have got these friends who had seen this man in his worst case scenarios and they wanted to get him close to Jesus. They wouldn't let a packed house stop them. Which I tell you what, that alone would have been enough to deter me. If there's any one thing I hate in this life, it is lines. I'll leave a full grocery cart at the checkout. You know what I'm talking about? Like just head, head out. It's not worth it. You know what I'm saying? Home delivery, God bless you, Dylans, for that because I, mean, I can't, can't deal. I'll pay the extra money at the amusement park to get the fast pass. I will mobile order at Starbucks so I can just walk in and grab my drink. I make Laura buy the movie tickets. I hate lines. God help us both if we get to the front of the line and you're not ready to order. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's McDonald's. They've had the same thing since 1955 when they opened. How do you not know what you want? I knew what I wanted before I parked the car. And I'd ask the kids on the way from the house, you want a cheeseburger or nuggets? Okay, that's your two options. You don't even have to speak English, right? It's all in pictures. Just point. Mm, like that. Like, that's all I want. I'll take that. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you not know? But it's lines. Can't deal with lines. These men would not let line stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. Just for a record, this is what faith is. Faith is obedience. If you study the Greek word translated in our Bibles as faith, it has nothing to do with a powerful imagination or eradicating doubt or any other form of mind over matter. It has nothing to do with feelings or mental imagery. It has to do with obedience. Furthermore, fear isn't the absence of faith, it's faith placed in the wrong thing. See, there's all kinds of incidents in the Bible where people were afraid, but because they were obedient, God answered their call and he called it, or answered their request and he called it faith. Even here, I imagine this man was afraid. We certainly aren't told if he liked the idea. The Bible really doesn't tell us much about him, just that he was kind of there and paralyzed all we know is that he was laying on a mat and his friends brought him to see Jesus. That's it. Now, maybe the guys talked him into it. They said, we heard about this guy. Technically, he's a carpenter, not a chiropractor, but we heard he can maybe help your spine. He's helped other people walk. They could have been doing it for selfish reasons. Like, man, I'm sick of carrying this dude around. We got to do everything for this guy. Let's take him to see Jesus. Maybe he can help a brother out. But the whole time, the guy's like, where are we going? What's going on? Why are all those people here? Or maybe they did it for helpful reasons. And when they saw how crowded the room was, and they said, uh, and, the, and the man who was afraid said, hey, maybe we should just go home. I'm used to disappointment. No, they argue. We're going to find another way in. 
look, there's a roof. Let's lower you through the roof. Guy's like, what? No, that sounds like a horrible idea. Or like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, you're already paralyzed. It's, just, it's, it's absurd. I don't know. I just, but don't judge me. You were thinking it. Okay. I mean, I just said what you were thinking. I wasn't thinking that, Pastor. Oh, fine. I mean, maybe you should preach next week because you're holier than I. You know but <clears throat> they geared up. They're going to lower the guy down through the roof. Now, scene change, intermission, okay, move the sets, put yourself inside the house. The room is packed. It's probably dark. There's no electricity. It's probably really hot. We are in the Middle East. There's no such thing as air conditioning. There's no degree 48 hour to control your scent. You know what I'm saying? It's probably ripe in in the room. All these guys crowded in, in robes. It's not a stretch to think that. Here Jesus is speaking, preaching, prophesying. The Pharisees are listening intently, not because of the power of his words, but because they want to scrutinize every word that comes out of his mouth. They're looking for some reason to condemn him, something to argue about. Suddenly there is a noise. You look around, you see some light all of a sudden poking through in the ceiling. You're like, what is that? Freaking rats in here? Like, I'm out. You know what I mean? If there's rats coming through, like lions and rats, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm not dealing with that. But little pieces of dirt start to fall to the ground. The roof starts breaking it away, opens up. Everybody stops, most likely. Jesus certainly stopped. He began to look up and this little trundle bed sort of swinging back and forth is lowered down and a man is laying in it. Now remember, he can't raise himself up. He's completely paralyzed. He maybe could arch his neck or turn his head one way or the other, but out of fear and anxiety, he doesn't. He's just laying there stationary. Friends drop him right in front of Jesus and Jesus looks down at him. And here the man is looking up at his creator, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and is to come, God incarnate. The man's fear is gone. But everyone wonders what will happen next. And I love what Scripture says. It says, when he saw their faith, somebody say their faith. When he saw their faith, He said, well, let me ask you this. I wonder, can he say your faith? You know, when Jesus saw their faith, can he say your faith? When is the, and remember, faith is about obedience. So when is the last time your obedience led someone to encounter Jesus? I don't know, but I know this. If you have friends like these guys who would go out of their way to bring you to an experience where you can encounter Jesus, that is a true friend. You may have your buddies who you hang out with and they're willing to do whatever it takes uh, for you, but, but until you have someone willing to break down any obstacle in order for you to encounter Jesus, then only then do you have a true friend. Now, sure, you're, some of your friends might be willing to B and E for you. That's breaking and entering. It's a felony. <laughs> Maybe they would do that for you, but, but do they so persistently bug you about your relationship with Jesus? 
Because that's how you know they really care about you. They're not willing to let you miss an opportunity to get close to Jesus. I'd be willing to put dollars to donuts that this is the reason some of you are here today. Because someone cared enough about you to invite you to church, to extend an invitation. They didn't have to. They could have said, uh, they just could have just come to church and said, forget about you. I don't need to hassle with you and all your excuses. Because people have more excuses than a beach has sand on why they don't need to come to church. I mean, we all have one. But a Christian who loves God and is a true follower of Jesus and wants to see his friends get close to the Lord, that is a true friend. This just goes to show that when a number of Christians are working together through God's Holy Spirit, He can bring lost people to Himself. Because you are given a gift. God wants you to use that gift. That's why we should join forces. I don't need you to quit doing what you're doing. I just need to teach you how to make a ministry out of it so that we can partner up. You can be God's hands and feet in, in the workplace and all that, and, and maybe you can't articulate the gospel in a helpful message. I can be the mouth, right? I can help create an environment for your friends to hear about how much Jesus loves them and, and wants to be in a relationship with them. And when you stop and think about it, most of us that have made commitments to Christ, we have not sustained that relationship merely through the testimony or lifestyle of one person. It was many people that impacted us, which is why it takes many people to serve in a church. I can go back over my life and I can remember little seeds that were sown over different years. My parents made an impression. Bill Scott made an impression. Dave Jackson, Ruth Carroll, Lois, Kevin, Joyce, Jay, Joe. I mean, I can, the list goes on and on. One seed sowed by one person. Somebody else watered. God made it grow. Ultimately, that time of reaping came. Which, to be fair, sometimes it wasn't my faith. It was their faith. It wasn't me. It was them. Sometimes when your friends are in that trial or we're, when they're going through that circumstance or when their child is walking away or when their marriage is falling apart or when their depression is so deep you literally have to come in and drag them out of bed, it's your faith that can sustain them through those trials and tribulations. It's your obedience that can help them through. Amen, somebody. Now, Watch what Jesus says next. Jesus, who knows this man's every motive, every action, says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now there's two very perplexed groups of people at this point. First of all, of course, the friends are confused. They lowered him down. He says, your sins are forgiven. They're like, wait, what? Hey, hey, uh, Jesus, that's not what we, we came for. That's not why we went Kool-Aid man on this person's house. You know, who knows if we're going to get sued now. I mean, we've done a lot of damage here, Jesus. We didn't want to sit. Tell him to walk. Like, that's why we came. We, we can do with the sins and all that. You know, we got sacrifices. We want this bro to walk out of the house. We heard you can make paralyzed folk walk, Jesus. That's why we're here. Of course, they're not the only ones who are bewildered. The Pharisees and teachers of the law are upset because they say, how can he forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees are right, by the way. 
Only God can forgive sins. I heard it explained like this. If you have Larry, Curly, and Mo, and Mo punches Larry in the face, but Curly goes up and says, Mo, I forgive you for punching Larry in the face. Larry's going to go, wait a minute, Curly. You can't forgive Mo for punching me in the face. Only I can do that. Only you can forgive sins that are against you. So when Jesus Christ looks down at this man and says, all your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees know what he's saying. Do you? He's saying, I'm God. I can forgive your sins. It's what got Jesus killed. In the clearest way possible, Jesus is saying, all sins are against me. When you lie, you're, you're breaking one of my commands. When you hurt my creation, you're trampling on me. I am God. It's an unbelievable claim. It's a claim that separates Christianity from every other world religion. No other world religion's founder would say that they are God. Only Jesus Christ has ever made that claim. Jot this down. It's not me. It's God. It's not me. It's God. You can literally do nothing to earn the forgiveness of your sins. You've sinned against God, and only God can forgive you. See, Jesus is not a religious teacher saying if you pray and you work really hard and you obey the Ten Commandments and you go through these various states of consciousness, then you can achieve salvation. No, he says, I have to forgive you because you have wronged me. I am God. What's interesting about the the word behind the verb forgiven is it's actually a nautical term. You can picture in your mind the the basic idea of sailing away. Sticks, anybody. You know what I'm saying? Come sail away. Never mind. Don't Google it. Okay. Uh, So your, your sins are driven away. That's what forgiven means. Furthermore, it's in the perfect, (coughs) excuse me, it's in the perfect tense, which emphasizes the abiding state of forgiveness. In other words, Jesus is telling this man, all of your sins are forgiven. And in a very real way, he's telling us, all of your sins can be forgiven. That's past, present, and future. He's harboring no ill feelings towards you. Some of you right now came this morning and you're feeling like God is mad at you for some reason. And what I came to church to tell you today is if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God's not mad at you. When He looks down at you, He sees His Son, Jesus. He sees forgiveness. He came so that you might have life and have it to the full and all your sins get forgiven. I know I've said this uh, probably a hundred times, but how many of your sins were future sins when Christ died on the cross? All of them. You weren't even alive. So all your sins get forgiven when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your faith, your obedience to trust in Jesus, it has made you well. Now, the question that I have is why did Jesus say that before he healed the man? He doesn't always do that. Sometimes he just heals them. I think the message here is Jesus is reminding all of us that symptoms aren't the setback. The paralysis wasn't the problem. The man thought that his immobilized limbs were the issue, but they're not. 
Your most fundamental problem is you're alienated from God and you need your sins forgiven. You need them removed. There's a barrier between you and God and it needs to be destroyed. And Jesus is saying there's only one disease that can really harm you. Suffering and pain, it can transform you psychologically. Disease and disorders can transform you sociologically. But only salvation and forgiveness of sins can transform you spiritually. The question is, are you put right with God through Jesus? That is the key to absolutely everything. It's only when you're spiritually right that all these other things that God has promised you are granted. Think, well, why aren't you helping me with this, Jesus? I'm sick. Why have you not healed me? I have financial problems. I need a job. Jesus says none of those things are like this. Those are symptoms. Until you get this right, nothing else can be put right. So he says, first, your sins are forgiven. But he sees the skepticism. Jesus knows how to read a room. So he then asks the question about which is easier. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Well, that's a pretty easy riddle, Jesus. You know, I'll make it a true daily double, Alex, because what is your sins are forgiven? Like, that's way harder or easier. Anybody can say that. I can say that right now, and you couldn't prove that I was wrong. The legitimacy to prove that uh, is much easier than for me to say, get up and walk. Like, everybody knows if that didn't work. If you can't get up and walk, making a crippled person walk is hard. That's power. Have you seen these documentaries where the soldiers get into some kind of catastrophic brain injury and the nurses are trying to help uh, teach them how to learn how to walk? It's not easy. They're having to carry them. They're having to use the handles and all of these things. It does not happen overnight. So saying your sins are forgiven, that's easy. Except if you think about it, We're in a real quagmire here because Jesus just established that God alone is the only one who can forgive sins. Furthermore, I know I've seen numerous people both in and out of the Bible perform healings. So which is harder? Well, I think Luke understood that if God granted Jesus the power to work in this miracle, then God himself supported the claim that Jesus can be the one who forgives sins, which is really harder than making somebody walk. Because Jesus is the only one who can do it. Write this down. It's not me. It's Jesus with me. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus in you. Jesus Christ is not someone who's just this wonderful additive that you need to help blend into your life so that you can be a little happier. It's much more than that. I'm not denying the fact that when Jesus enters into your life, you will be happier and being a Christian can make you more joyous. But what I am saying is that happiness is essentially a fringe benefit. The things that Jesus promised, joy, peace, patience, kindness, happiness, all of these things, these are great things. But the bottom line is Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ can pardon you of your sins. Your friends can get you close. They can help you hear the message. But listen to me, you're the one that has to get up and walk. 
And you're the one who has to leave the house. So let me point out two things quickly as we close. I don't think it's difficult for a person to get interested in the message of the gospel. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. What do I mean by that? Am I saying that you can lose your salvation? No, absolutely not. If God gives it, He doesn't take it away. What I mean is, like this paralyzed man, we've had our sins forgiven, but we've never taken up our mat and walked out of the room. If you want to flip the switch on faith, you have to realize that you don't need more of it. I think the Bible teaches you already have enough faith because you have Jesus. What brings God's favor and what brings God's power is our willingness to obey and act upon whatever tiny bit of faith we have. This journey of faith is a pilgrimage. We spend our lives going someplace, following after Jesus, discovering His plan and purpose for how He's called us to live. I think the first thing that we see here is we shouldn't be doing the journey alone. we got to have friends that have faith for us sometimes. It's not about me. It's about us. It's about you. So I can't encourage you enough to jump into a small group. Sign up today. Do life with some people that can see below the surface that we all just get to see for an hour on Sunday. Amen, somebody. I'm going to give you dozens of stories of life change that's happened because somebody jumped into a small group. The second thing that we need to see is you don't have all the time in the world. These men wouldn't have broken down somebody's roof uh, if they didn't feel like they were going to lose their opportunity to get their friend close to Jesus. When I talk about the issue of salvation, I'm talking about the most important issue of your life. You have no idea how much time you have left. You're not guaranteed even to walk out of this gymnasium. So when I talk about salvation, I'm asking you, do you really know that your sins have been forgiven? Do you want to know that when you die, you will go to heaven? Do you want to be sure? Because here's what the Bible says. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess simply means to agree with God, to acknowledge that you've fallen short that you haven't lived up to the standards that God has placed on all of humanity. God's saying, man, don't waste your chance. Take the opportunity. The friends gathered in this room to help you encounter Jesus want to give you a chance to say, God, be first in my life. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You're here this morning and you're saying, man, pastor, I haven't made that statement of faith yet. I want to. I want to give you a chance to confess, to acknowledge God. Just in your heart, say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've sinned. I'm sorry I haven't lived close to you. 
I'm sorry, I haven't trusted your son, Jesus. But I believe Jesus is who he said he was. That he is God. That he died on a cross for me. That his blood washes away my sin. That he rose from the dead. And I can have eternal life. God, I give you my life. Help me live for you. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here to to allow people to trust in your Savior. Thank you for the free gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus. It's not about me. It's about you, God. I thank you for every person in this room today. Give them the next step that they need to take to more closely follow you. If it's to be this friend for somebody, if it's to get in a group, if it's to serve, if, uh, if it's to start giving, whatever it is, God, help them understand it. Bless their marriage, bless their home. Encourage them today. We're all in this to glorify you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Everybody said, amen.